Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers went back to the last decade during our 10th anniversary flagship season, The Decades. On March 31st, 2020, in our new online webinite format, these storytellers rolled it back with stories inspired by the theme, Tens. And now, our featured storytellers, Charlie Turner, Isaac Prado, and Kate Brousset. We are rolling with the times. It's story time. Charlie Turner. So when I was about 10, my dad brought home a horse and he built this makeshift corral to keep it in, but it kept getting out and my dad would go find it and bring it back. And he taught me how you break a horse. He said, if they don't do what you want, you kick them in the belly and you show them who's the boss. So I was born into a family of boys and out of six kids, I was the only girl. So it was really important to be tough in my family, at least for the boys. For me, it was more important to be sweet, to keep my knees together when I was sitting and act like a lady. And I was a daddy's girl. When my dad would come home from work, I'd pull his boots off and at night he would, um, carry me out under the stars and sing to me in his gravelly voice, old cowboy songs. But by the age of 10, I was no longer my daddy's little princess. I always had my nose in a book. I fought with my brothers. My room was always a mess. I was a stubborn little kid. And when I talked back, my dad would show me who was the boss. So um, he would say, let's go for a walk. And he would lecture me on how a woman should be compassionate and kind and loving and gentle and selfless and the places we walked were beautiful northern nevada is full of mountains and aspens and sagebrush and blue skies but my dad's words were a kick in the belly and i came away from those walks feeling like and believing that i was lazy and selfish and a failure my dad was a lawyer. He had um, grown up working ranches, so in his bones he was a cowboy. And even though his hands were soft, he always wore his boots and his Stetson with his suit and tie to the office. But he didn't make a lot of money practicing law because he spent most of his time on his favorite political cause, which was defending the land users of the West against the federal government and the environmentalists. So he advocated for ranchers, miners, loggers, anyone who used the land. He considered himself a freedom fighter and he was, um, he loved his country. He'd always say, God gave us this country. It's the greatest country on earth and the only place where a person can really be free. And when I was little, I absolutely adored my dad and I wanted to grow up and change the world just like him. I remember once he, um, he had me, I think he was giving me a project. To, I was at his office after school and gave me something to fill my time. So he said, go make a list of all the things you want to do. So I made this long list. I wanted to travel. I wanted to get a PhD. I wanted to write books. I wanted to study psychology and history and um, philosophy. And I wanted to dance and I wanted to end poverty and war. And I showed my list to my dad and all he said was, 
aren't you going to get married and have kids? So I tacked get married and have children onto the end of my list, and we never spoke of it again. But as I got older, it was, um, it was turning out that I, could, I was a pretty good writer. And so my dad started taking me on speaking tours with him. And he'd talk to me about his ideas while I drove because he knew the power of the pen. And he wanted me to write for his cause. But I just couldn't get behind his ideas because um, everything he said about freedom and independence didn't seem to apply to me. And I was starting to realize that I didn't always agree with everything that my dad said or that he believed. And my favorite um, English teacher in high school was very active in the Sierra Club. I had a few friends who were big fans of the environmentalist writer, Edward Abbey. In fact, um, one night I ended up in, out in knee deep in snow with a gas can and a couple of my friends. We were trying to burn down this dilapidated old wooden billboard on the edge of town, just like Edward Abbey's monkey wrench game. But I didn't have the courage or the confidence to really speak out or do anything meaningful. I was afraid to have my own thoughts, let alone speak them or act on them in any meaningful way. Um, so instead, I got depressed. And when I was 20, I, um, I got married. And I had my first baby the next year. And it was the first time my dad ever told me he was proud of me. I, I wasn't proud of me, though. I hadn't done any of the things on that list that I'd made so long ago, and I wasn't happy. I had grown up with a depressed mother, and I really didn't want my kids to have the same experience. But no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't seem to change myself or my life. And I figured that my dad had been right. I was and always would be a selfish, lazy failure. And then, in the 10th month of 2009, right on the eve of the 2010s, I made a radical decision. I stopped going to church. And that decision shaped the next decade. Um, a lot of people talk about being born again when they come to religion. But for me, leaving was a rebirth. I could read without censoring every sentence. I could write in my journals without editing every word. And I sometimes even started to speak my thoughts and ideas out loud. And things started to change. I went back to school. I got a graduate degree in literature. And um, I started writing every day. And my husband of 20 years moved out. Um, a year later, we were divorced. It was an exhilarating time of change and discovery, but it was also a time of grief and loss, and it was more challenging than anything I'd ever experienced. I had been a stay-at-home mom my whole adult life. I had never supported myself. I had two children under the age of four, a preteen and two teens, who were all very high-needs kids, <laughs> and... Um, I had walked away from the only community I'd ever known, and I hadn't yet built a new one. And though my family didn't disown me by any means, but there was definitely a split. We couldn't relate to each other anymore, and 
we just never talked. And then in the fall of 2013, it was another October, my grandmother died. So I drove in the middle of the night down to New Mexico where she had lived. And I met my family in this Walmart parking lot in Gallup, New Mexico. It was Dia de los Muertos. And it was the first time I'd seen my father since I had left the church and divorced my husband. And the first thing he said to me was, let's go for a walk. There were more ravens in that parking lot than I have ever seen anywhere. And they were everywhere. They were in like around puddles when we walked, they'd fly up. There were on light poles and on tops of cars and in the eaves of the building. And my dad said, there's too many ravens because the bureaucrats and the environmentalists won't let us control predators. He called them welfare birds. And then he motioned to the packed parking lot and he said, it looks like it's welfare day on the reservation. Then he talked about the welfare system and how Roosevelt had sent our country off in the direction of socialism. And, um, but my dad is an optimist, so he brought it back around to how this is still the greatest country on earth and it's still the land of opportunity. And I kind of quietly, kind of tentatively said, well, it is for some. And my dad stopped walking and asked me to explain what I meant. So you have to understand, my dad was a Green Beret. He was an intelligence officer in Vietnam. He'd spent his whole adult life as an attorney. He could intimidate and um, interrogate, and I had always been terrified of my dad. But I had well over a year of graduate school under my belt. If any of you guys know graduate students, <laughs> we think we know everything. And I... Um, I was learning to speak my mind with confidence and I knew I could back up my assertions. So I took a deep breath and I explained to my dad exactly what I meant. The next time I saw my dad, it was early summer. I was visiting home and I was wearing a skirt. It was a hot summer day. So I was wearing a skirt that was a little above my knees. I had on a blouse that showed my shoulders. This was something I, I never would have worn when I was still in the church. And the first thing my dad said when he saw me was, let's go for a walk. I was sure that he was going to um, tell me to go change and then burn my clothes on the barbecue like he used to do when I was a teen. But instead, he wanted my thoughts on his latest political project. So in the spring of 2014, there had been a standoff between the BLM, it was an armed standoff between the BLM and the Bundys in Clark County, Nevada, over grazing rights. And prior to that, the dad, Cliven Bundy, had asked my father to represent him, but my dad refused. He knew that Bundy hadn't paid his grazing fees. He knew there was no case and he didn't want to touch it. But he had clients who had paid all of their grazing fees and they were still being impacted by what they felt were unfair changes to grazing laws. And so my dad was a big fan of Gandhi, and he had already organized two peaceful protests. There was the Jarbage Shovel Brigade in 2000 and the Klamath Falls Bucket Brigade in 2001. So this time he wanted to organize, and he was in the process of organizing when we talked, a, um, a cross-country ride. He was organizing horses and riders 
to carry a satchel of petitions, Pony Express style, across all the way across the country to deliver to Washington, D.C. And so by September of 2014, he had made his grass ride Cowboy Express a reality. And the first rider took off out of the surf, um, heading east from Bodega Bay, California. So the riders would ride 10 mile stretches and then pass off the satchel to the next person. But um, when my dad was riding a 10 mile stretch in Kansas, he was thrown from his horse and he suffered a concussion, but my dad was tough and he kept riding and they made it all the way to Washington DC where um, they made national television briefly for slowing down traffic and then they rode on to the Atlantic. My dad called me when it was all over. He was still on the East Coast and I could tell he was having the time of his life. But what I remember most from that conversation is him laughing at himself and saying, you know, I've taken everything too seriously. So they headed back west and when my dad got as far as Salt Lake City, he checked himself into the hospital there. They did a routine surgery to leave pre relieve pressure from the concussion. But my dad never woke up. My whole family was able to be there. We gathered around his bed with his cowboy boots and we sang old Marty Robbins songs and waited for him to take his last breath. My dad's funeral was really hard for me. It was all about his politics and I just wanted to be able to grieve the daddy who used to sing to me under the stars. The day before his funeral, which was Dia de los Muertos is also Nevada Day. And his supporters were hailing him as a martyr for his cause. And some of them even wanted to carry his body in the parade. And thank God the funeral director didn't let that happen. But his face was plastered on almost every car and float. There was a helicopter flyover. On the day of his funeral, there was a three volley salute and we all filled in his grave ourselves with the shovels from his shovel brigade. With every shovel full of dirt, I was thinking of another day. That Dia de los Muertos, a year before his funeral, when we had walked around that raven-infested Walmart parking lot. And I think it was the first real conversation I'd ever had with my dad. It wasn't inter an interrogation. He listened to me. He listened to what I said and we had a dialogue. And we talked about war, we talked about politics, we talked about human rights, we talked about the environment. And I, I knew I pushed him a little too far when I challenged him on his denial of climate change, but he just looked at me and he said, I may not agree with you, but I sure do like you. And this time, it was so different than the times that he told me he was proud of me for being a good woman because I could see in his eyes that he didn't just like me, he respected me. And I was finally learning to respect myself. Thank you for that, Charlie. And our next featured storyteller, there he is. Hi, Isaac. You know, growing up, I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I didn't have. Um, I knew where I was going. I knew all these things. But really, I didn't know that all these things can be taken from me in seconds and just very quick. 
So let's rewind back to 2016, January of 2016. I was living in um, Hoi An, Vietnam. It's a beach town on the coast of Vietnam. I was there for already about six months. And in the January time, um, they have a rainy season and it's not cold. It's, it's very still muggy and it's very, very wet. Um, at this time in Vietnam, I was actually working with a woman who um, bought raw material from indigenous uh, women from the mountainsides in central Vietnam. So I would per they would, um, she would purchase this material and then she would then take that material, make bags out of them and support that village through her business. So she had hired me um, to take photos for her, to run her social media platforms. So in January, I had already been there for three months and every three months you have to go on a visa run. So basically what a visa run is, you just have to step out of the country and come back into the, you know, the same country if you wanted to. Um, so I had planned before going to Vietnam to attend a med meditation course called Vipassana in Cambodia, but I didn't get to go to that meditation course. So when the time came around, January came around, I signed up for this meditation course and I was going to make it, a, you know, a double, you, you know, a, a grand slam. I was going to travel to Malaysia. I was going to take a meditation course and I was getting the visa run out of the way. So the day before I took off to Malaysia, she, the lady I was working with, she invited me to take photos uh, at a tailor. So there I, I go in, you know, the day before my flight and it's pouring rain. I get on my motorbike, I get to the tailor and it's, I'm just drenched in, in water, but I'm so excited. I'm just like so determined that I'm going to go to Malaysia for at least 15 days and 16 days to, to explore um, a new country. So I take my photos and it, we came to an agreement that she was also going to pay me two months in advance um, for doing this work. So I did the work, I took the photos and she paid me all in cash. And I took that cash with me on the plane to Malaysia. So the next morning I drove 20 minutes north of Hoi An to Da Nang, um, got on the plane then I took a six ride, a six hour ride plane to Malaysia. Got to Malaysia, we landed. I got off my plane. I walked to the bus ticket counter. I bought my bus ticket. Then I, from the bus ticket counter, I walked into the bus. I sat at the, not the last row, but the second to the last row maybe. Um, so I sat there and it's a one hour bus ride from the airport to the city center. So we park, I get off the bus. I said, okay, I have my camera. I've got my phone, I've got my backpack. And I just start searching my pockets like, oh shoot, where's my wallet? I, where's my wallet, where's my money? I ran back into the bus. I looked under my seat, I looked everywhere, couldn't find my wallet, it was gone. I ran back out. I asked the, the bus driver if he's seen anybody, can, you know, did somebody turn in a wallet to him? He said, no, I have no idea. And you got to know also there's 
few different languages spoken in Malaysia and in the signs everywhere they're um, in like an Indian language or Malay language or even in Chinese. So all these different languages, you kind of not really kind of figure out where you, what you need to do at that point. So um, I ended up calling the airport and they had no idea either. So I wasn't about to make a one hour bus ride from the city center to back to the airport because it was an hour. I, by the time I got there, I would have, you know, obviously it was gone. So I did, I felt very, just for a few moments when I realized my wallet was gone. I really, I felt like hot and tingly. Everything was, I started to sweat. And again, I'm in Malaysia, Southeast Asia. It's very hot. By this time it was maybe three o'clock in the afternoon. And I spent the next four hours looking for the correct, um, police station to make a police report to file a police report to tell them you know my situation i'm an illegal alien in this country i have no money i have no passport um i finally um ran into this guy some random guy i just asked random people hey can you help me get to this police station this is the one i need to go to after visiting a ton of them and he finally said you know what i'll give you a ride so he took me a ride to that police station um, some, a very nice local person. Um, I got to the police station. I filed my report and luckily what really saved me and helped me was that I had a photo of my passport. I took a photo of my passport and I took a photo of it and I had it with me in my phone. So I presented this to the officer and we finished the police report and he obviously knew that I had no money and he ended up giving me like, 50 ringgit, which is maybe like 10, 10 US dollars, which is actually enough for breakfast, uh, for dinner that night, a place to sleep and breakfast. So I walked to my, the closest hostel that was close to me. I had the most amazing local Indian food that, in, that I had ever tasted in my life. It was so good. I had, the, the, the dinner was just so filling. I ended up going to the hostel, walking to the hostel. I was so tired. By that time, it was already nighttime. I woke up the next morning um, around 10 o'clock. I was so tired. There was no windows in my hostel, in my room. So I didn't see that the sun was up. I thought to myself, oh man, I could have been at the US Embassy by now. So I packed up my things. I walked another hour in the blazing hot sun. Luckily in Malaysia, it's not so rainy but it was so hot. By the time I got to the next hostel, I was drenched in sweat. And I was also, again, so very tired, so exhausted. My mentally, my mentally was drained from trying to figure out what to do. By that time, I had already contacted my family, my parents back over here in, in Texas, actually, and you know, told them what had happened. And what's crazy also in these countries is that in order to get Wi-Fi, uh, to communicate with people around the world, you had to be a paying customer. So I didn't even have money to pay for Wi-Fi. So I had to tell people my situation and they kind of gave me the Wi-Fi password just because of my situation. So I walked to that next hostel. I told them my situation. I told them I 
ran out of money. My passport is gone. I cannot really uh, pay yet, but I can, you know, help with whatever you guys need. Uh, kind of just seeing if they could help me out. They ended up giving me uh, a whole weekend for free and which very was very helpful for me at this time because it was Friday. I had to make my way to the embassy. So I got my stuff. I put it into the hostel that I was now staying at. I walked another hour or so in the blazing hot sun to the U.S. Embassy. I told them my situation. Again, luckily enough, I had a photo of my passport in my phone. So they said, well, it's going to take $250 and 10 days for you to get your new passport back. And I said, oh, shoot. Well, I don't have that money yet. I had it, but I don't have it anymore. Um, let me see what I can do. I'll come back on Monday. So went back to my hostel, contacted my family again. Um, I made the most amazing friends that helped me with food, with drinks, even though I thought I had nothing. I had probably the most, one of the most amazing times of my life, um, hanging out with, you know, people that were traveling, that were experiencing, they may have experienced the same thing I did, but I just knew that I was was taken care of and I was supported uh, by people around me and, you know, just knowing that I was going to have to get this settled. So the weekend went by, I canceled my passport on Saturday. On Monday, the U S embassy opens again and I walk another hour in the blazing hot sun to the U S embassy. I got a ticket. I waited for about 30 minutes for, to be called up to the, uh, to the, it's the desk at the kiosk. And as soon as I walked up to the counter, the lady that helped me on Friday, she recognized who I was and said, is this yours? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's mine. And I was like, what? You have my stuff. And then she says, is this your passport? And I said, yeah, that's my passport. But I just canceled it on Saturday. And I was so bummed. I was, it was crazy. It was just so random that my wallet had showed up in the U S embassy. She told me, Oh yeah, somebody found it in the trash can and turned it in. Um, maybe an hour or two after you left on Friday. And I was just, I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm here to apply for a new passport. Here's $250. Here's my application. And then the lady said, okay, you have 10 days for it to come back and you know, back to the U.S. Embassy. So I said, all right, well, I got to survive at least two days because the meditation course that I had signed up for was beginning on Wednesday. So I said, I have to survive at least two more days, minimal, you know, food uh, to get me to this meditation course, which really is donation based. And I just knew that I was going to have 10 nights of a bed and 10 days with food. And it was in the northwest corner of Malaysia. And I, you know, my plan was to kind of travel around the country a little bit before I went up uh, to the meditation course. So I went through the meditation for 10 days. I got back to the U.S. Embassy. And at the end of all that, I got my passport back. And I spent a few more days in Malaysia, went back to Vietnam and spent Lunar New Year, by this time it was already February, and spent Lunar New Year in Vietnam um, for another 10 days before I went back to where I was originally 
starting my adventures in Hoi An, Vietnam. Thank you, Isaac. Kate Brisset. Uh, so my life was shaped by one of my greatest fears. And in the decade of 2010, I overcame that fear. Uh, my mom and my aunt, they lived downwind from the atomic bomb testing of the 1950s and early 60s. The wind carried the radioactive fallout that caused the genetic mutation that predisposed them to cancer. And um, that was a long time ago, but um, it changed our lives. So last August, I took flowers to the cemetery and I sat in the grass with my cousin Lacey in front of our mother's headstones. And I realized that my aunt was taken by breast cancer at the same age that I am now. So um, growing up, my mom often told the story of her mother's difficult death. And I wondered if the fear that she carried had kept her from getting checked out sooner because by the time her ovarian cancer was diagnosed, it was stage four. And I too carried the fear during my life. Um, in 2006, I was trying to get pregnant. And because of my family history of cancer, I was offered genetic testing and I refused because I was afraid. Um, and then a year later in 2007, I was 33 years old and I was about 24 weeks into my pregnancy with triplets when I discovered a lump in my left breast. And I had felt the hard spot on my chest one morning when my husband Chad gave me a hug goodbye as I was laying in my hospital bed. I had landed in the hospital somewhat unexpectedly a few weeks earlier with preterm labor and I still had two, at least two months of strict bed rest to go. So um, after that, um, I uh, asked one of my four high-risk obstetricians to check out the lump. Um, and he ordered a ultrasound that showed nothing of concern. So at the time, I knew that I had this high risk, high family um, history of breast cancer, but I didn't understand the genetics at the time. And I was completely unaware that estrogen could fuel a tumor, like little energy bites wrapped in bacon. Um, so I was um, told that it was nothing of concern. So. I was more than happy to believe that doctor that this lump um, was just a normal part of pregnancy and the body changes during that. So, but then three weeks later, the lump seemed larger. So I asked a second doctor to check it. Um, actually, he was the one that ordered the ultrasound and it showed that there was nothing of concern. Um, and then, at 30 weeks pregnant, um, I looked down and saw a spot of blood on my shirt 
and it had actually come from the nipple of the same breast that had the lump. So I asked my doctor about it. That was the third doctor at that point. And um, he told me to stop worrying. He said that the lump would resolve itself when I started to breastfeed. So the next day, when the fourth obstetrician rotated into the hospital, I asked him. Um, and he listened to me, and he sent a surgeon to meet with me. And he measured the lump, and he said, okay, I'll come back in two weeks. And if, it's, if it has grown, then we will order biopsy. So he came back in two weeks, and it had grown by two centimeters. I had the biopsy, and it was Friday, of course. So I had to wait over the long weekend with wondering what my results would be. So then um, Monday morning, um, a surgeon strode back into my room, and he said abruptly, we have a carcinoma, and call your family together and we'll talk later. And my nurse had followed him into the room, and she sat on the edge of my bed and held my hand until my husband could get there. Um, and I thought that this was the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. I was about to have three tiny babies, and they would need 110% of their mother. Um, and so um, I thought about my aunt, and she had left behind four children when she died of breast cancer. And now my future seemed uncertain. I didn't even know if I would be here to see my children go off to kindergarten, let alone college. It was not part of the plan. So after the diagnosis, my husband and I took a few days to break the news to our close family and friends so that we wouldn't have to announce the birth of our triplets at the same time. And the stress of the diagnosis brought on stronger contractions. So, um, well, actually, um, yeah, I was, I was trying to keep those babies from being born. I was only 33 weeks along. So then, um, initially, the very hardest thing for me was feeling like I was not in control. I'm a bit of a control person. <laughs> Um, the cancer was in control. And so none of my doctors or nurses knew what to do with this woman that was pregnant with triplets and had breast cancer. So they sent in Jan. And Jan was a nurse with 24 weeks or 24 years of experience and she worked in the neonatal intensive care unit and she was a breastfeeding expert. And it turned out she was herself a breast cancer survivor. So they sent her to meet with me and when she walked in the room, she, um, she just glowed and she carried herself with such grace and all the women in my family that had been through this before me were dead. And so to just see her standing there above my bed was just a huge relief. And she was able to explain 
what the next steps were in a way that I could understand. And um, she said I could ask her anything about her experience. So um, I just remember telling everyone how much better I felt after talking with Jen. And because of her, I realized that I had many important choices to make and options available. For example, my surgeon discouraged me from breastfeeding and actually told me I couldn't breastfeed because it would make the surgery harder. And the thought that I could not nourish these little babies was agonizing for me. So Jan researched whether I could actually breastfeed from my healthy breast and determined that I could. As long as I just dumped my milk from uh, on the days that I would get antibiotics or different procedures done. So she said, she reminded me that it was my body, it was my babies, it was my choice. So I trusted her and I ended up changing surgeons. Um, and with each decision I made, I took that control back from the cancer. Another decision I made was to go ahead and finally get the genetic testing. Um, and then I decided ahead of time that no matter what, that the day that the triplets were born was going to be a joyous day. And so we just put the cancer aside on that day. And so a few days later on August 25th in the morning, um, I cried tears of joy as each baby announced their arrival with a soft cry. And Dad and I had three healthy babies. And I realized that my body was strong and resilient and it had just created something so good even while I had cancer active in my body. So um, we scheduled my surgery for 10 days later and on the eve of my surgery, I got my genetic results. I was positive. The mutated gene was passed on to me. Even if I had one mastectomy, I would still have an extremely high chance that I would get cancer in the healthy breast. So my choice to be tested and the resulting information made me confident of my decision to have a mastectomy. And I wasn't afraid anymore. What I learned is that living with the fear was almost worse than the cancer. So um, we brought the triplets home and we fed and diapered them eight times a day around the clock. And as they grew, we were able to feed them greater amounts less often. So not only did the triplets uh, benefit from the breastfeeding, but I, it gave me so much peace and comfort to have that experience before losing both of my breasts. And I hadn't thought about it quite that way before, but I think Jan had known that the whole experience would heal my mind, body, and spirit. And I, I really couldn't have done it without her. Um, I kept thinking, where do I want to be in 10 years? I wanted to make sure that I would be around. So I made other choices to have that other mastectomy, to have um, my ovaries taken out, um, 
to prevent recurrence, I started an anti-estrogen pill that I would take for 10 years. So exactly a year after my first surgery, I had a clean bill of health. Um, and that's when the inspiration to become a nurse hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, I was a newspaper reporter in my first career, and um, I sat down at the kitchen table and I opened up Idaho Statesman, and there was Jen's picture, the nurse that had made such a difference for me. It was the obituary section. She had died. And it just like stabbed me in the heart to see her face there and to not have known. Um, so when I met Jan, she told me that she was so happy to help me through my experience because someone had shown her the way too, and that person was no longer around to think. So she helped me. And so I thought that's what Jan would want me to do. So I decided that I wanted to become a nurse. So even though I had just, um, the triplets had just turned one, <laughs> and I was having my second breast reconstructive surgery in like a month, and my final infusion of a targeted therapy in November, the next month, um, I asked my husband how he would feel if I went back to school. So <laughs> I did. And, um, but um, before classes started, um, my oncologist ordered a bone scan to follow up on an abnormal chest x-ray. The x-ray had shown a mottled rib and bone is a common site of metastasis. So I was scared and I didn't wanna pay my tuition until I had the results of that. Well, I found out that I was okay, but then I started thinking, well, am I really gonna be okay? Am I really gonna get to complete my nursing degree or is all this time and money and effort spent on my education going to be a huge waste of time? But I decided that that wasn't going to stop me from beginning. Um, I just lived as though I would live on. So then three years later, it was 2012, and I reached five years of survivorship. And the triplets started kindergarten, and I was there to get them off of the school bus. Um, and um, I graduated nursing school. So my ultimate dream job was to work focused in on breast cancer. But to do that, I would need a few years on the oncology floor first. And at the time, they didn't hire new grads. So a year and a half after my first nursing job, I finally got a position working 12-hour night shifts on the oncology unit. <laughs> so, um, and I um, became a chemotherapy nurse, and I earned my oncology certification. And I was part of this team that just pours their whole intellect and all their spiritual and physical energy into caring for these inspirational people. So that was a privilege. And then before I knew it, it was 2017 and I had reached 10 years of survivorship. So my oncologist told me to never come back. I had made it 
And that milestone essentially means that you're cured. So I had worked these 12 hour night shifts for five years. So I decided it was time to um, focus on my long held career goal to specialize in breast cancer. And with my personal and professional experience, I thought it would be easy to find a position. But was anything ever easy? <laughs> uh, so it took over a year. And my low point was when a hiring manager pulled me in an interview that I would never work in her department because I'm a survivor. So um, they said it would be too hard for me and they assumed what it would feel like to be a survivor, but I had already worked in oncology for five years. So um, it turned out that everything I had survived prepared me for what I wanted to do. So soon, thankfully, a position came up with a new surgeon that was returning to Boise. And he would bring um, uh, new exciting innovations in breast reconstructive surgery back to Idaho for the very first time from all over the world. And um, that team saw me and they saw the whole me and they offered me the job and the chance to do my thing, which is to provide choices to people that are in line with their goals. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise and our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Dr. Chad Spears. Support this story program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Story Story Night.